me invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Our schedule is a little bit off. Uh, big things happen, and uh, schedule gets changed. We are going to try to get a new sermon card out that will ad address some of those changes, but this message was going to be preached last week and now this week. Um, next week, our brother Toph will be bringing another message on healthy church life, and then in two weeks, our, our friends that we've sent off to Shalom Community Church will be back as we uh, install their first group of elders as they prepare to uh, formally covenant together as a church plant church in North Minneapolis, and we're so excited for that. Also, by way of uh, just exciting update, our former elder Jahil Richards, Jahil and Ka Richards, Jahil is uh, first Sunday today as the senior pastor of Springs of Grace Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so please be praying for he and Ka. Uh, they were greeted with a really hard situation that happened right in their community the night they got there. And so been uh, just going back and forth with our, our good friend and uh, just want to pray for them. So let me read our text. We'll pray. We'll pray for them, and uh, we'll dig in. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Uh, we're going to walk through the, the, the chapter here this morning very briefly, but our text this morning folks in on Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Please stand for the reading of the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And Matthew is the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament. And we are in chapter 18, and then verses 15 through 20. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts this morning. And we pray for Springs of Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana, and Jahil and Ka, our dear friends, that you would be with them in this great work you've called them to. They need you, and we need you. Please draw near in these minutes and pour out mercy on us, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. Two weeks ago, Sunday, I got a text from uh, Toaf that said that uh, Jason Anna's son, Jack, had been in an accident and he was at the hospital. Please pray. That Monday morning, I was listening to a message by Sinclair Ferguson where he was walking through Romans 5, 
describing why do trials happen? Why so much suffering for believers? He was highlighting that suffering produces endurance and endurance character. Fast forward to Romans 8 and everyone who has been bought by Jesus. The purpose that God has for them is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so it's easy for us to think, okay, life should be easy. And yet for God's people, it is so often not easy. Monday, two weeks ago, in my office, asked Toph, how's Jax? And Toph says he's not doing well. Then he gets a text, he looks at me, and he said, Jax died. And we went, oh my, oh my, oh my. Wrote a letter Monday night for the, all of you and for others to describe what had happened. Tuesday, we were scrambling, put together a little GoFundMe thing, knowing that wasn't going to fix anything, but wanted to provide some help to Jason and Anna. Toph and Amy got on a plane, headed right down to Austin to be with the Calcoats. Um, didn't know when exactly the funeral was going to be, so we bought tickets. Uh, when I talked to Jason's brother, Bernie, he said, well, Jason and Anna are sleeping, first time they've slept. I can't wake them, but I know the funeral's going to be this weekend. So we bought tickets last night to go down for the weekend, to go Friday, come back Monday. Talked to Bernie, Jason's brother, the next day, and Bernie was, did so much to help Jason through this really amazing brother. And and he said, yeah, the, the funeral is going to be Friday, and we would like for you to preach. I said, what time Friday? Two o'clock. Our flight was due in at 11.30. And I said, okay, if God gets us there, we'll do it. So, uh, trying to get my head together. We fly in Friday. Several other families were so thankful, uh, and, and individuals went down from Jubilee to be at the funeral, which was, which was fantastic. Um, get off the plane, 11.30. The church is 40 minutes away. We drive up. My head is spinning. I'd ask a lot of people to pray for this because I knew it was going to be hard. And uh, gathering my thoughts, we're trying to put together a little plan for the graveside. And, uh, and then I go into, there's a reviewal, and there's this beautiful little boy's uh, earthly body laying in that casket. And, and to see that little guy, to say, this, this should not be. This should not be, Right? And it's at that moment that you're reminded that if Jesus Christ is not resurrected from the dead, we are most of all to be pitied, right? And our hope is not in this life alone. And then go back to trying to get a a message together. And uh, Lesk, my wife, comes in said, Jason and Ann are here. I haven't seen them yet. Funeral's going to happen in an hour. I walk in, and there's Jason. Seven years ago, had the privilege of, of marrying Jason and Anna. Jason's been an elder here, led worship so many times. Uh, see this guy, and he just, we wrap each other up for, for a minute straight. He just heaves in my arms weeping deeply and uh, my goodness I mean that is that is some kind of pain 
uh, a pain that, that some of you know very, very well. And then turned to Anna and through many tears and a big hug, Anna says, thank you so much for all the promises that you have taught us over the years that we are standing on. We dedicated Jacks with you two years ago to the Lord, and now he is with him. And uh, my goodness, um, every one of these sermons we do, every time we gather here, is trying to prepare us for those days, right? Those, those really hard days. And then um, shortly thereafter, the sermon or the uh, service began. And uh, it was awful and wonderful at the same time. We sang, Jason Anna said the whole week, we just want uh, our friends to sing over us, sing God's promises over us. And so we sang. And then uh, Anna's brother shared a eulogy for little Jacks, describing this little boy and, and, and all the beauty of his life. And uh, right in the middle of his eulogy, he was about to say his next words, and a big train went rumbling by and let out a loud train whistle that interrupted the, services, the service. And Anna's brother's next words were, Jacks loved trains. And it was such a sweet gift from the Lord in that moment. And he got done. We watched uh, a slideshow and some videos of this little boy. And then our brother Toph got up to read scripture. And God was on Toph as he uh, talked to his uh, best friends and uh, just expressed his love for them. And then read Psalm 34, which begins... I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And of course, with halting emotion. And then got up, did my best to point the unbelievers there, the believers that uh, apart from hope in Christ on this day, there is only grief. And yet we were grieving very much, and we were grieving with hope. And God gave uh, help uh, in that uh, rest of that service. And uh, then the next day, we went to the, the graveside, and, and, and God was there. And then we gathered with Jason Anna the next day and did a lot of weeping and a lot of hugging and a lot of encouraging and a little bit of baseball in the backyard with Weston and Drew. And then the next day, Sunday, last Sunday a week ago, I was... We were with them for family worship in their home, and it was powerful, and it was hard, and it was good. So, now we are in Matthew 18, and I want to say thanks for praying for them. Please, obviously, continue to pray for them. It doesn't, uh, doesn't end in a moment. It's a long journey, long pain, and uh, God is good. God is with them, and, uh, and I told multiple people, I hope we don't have to do that again very soon, and uh, when we do, God will be our supply. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, this morning, briefly, we want to do three things. One, I just want to walk through this, this chapter here, Matthew 18. This is where Jesus' teaching turns and begins to talk about what this community that he is forming, what this community of people that he has died for is to look like. Then second, we're going to zoom into this text that we read 
15 through 20, where Jesus has some specific words to us about how the church is to operate and what this thing called church discipline is, why it's a good thing, why we should practice it, and why at Jubilee we practice it. And then third, we just want to think about a a few ways of uh, applying this, a few questions that we might be wrestling with as, as we think about this. But first, let's briefly go through the chapter. Let's go up to verse 1 and just very quickly go through the chapter so we get our, our bearings, context of what Jesus is talking about uh, as, as we circle into our, our text there in the middle. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Me? My brother? Who's the greatest? Which one of us is the best? And Jesus called to them a child. And he put that child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. First thing Jesus says to us is, in a world that wants to know who is the greatest, in a world that likes to say, I am the best. Do we ever hear that in 2019? I'm the best. We hear it a lot. Jesus says, no, no. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is about. The kingdom of heaven is about this little child here. Little ones we just saw. You got to become like this. Kingdom of heaven is for those who recognize they can't do it all themselves. They need help. They must come to God the Father as a child. Verse 5, he continues teaching us with children about what the people of God are to be like. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What a beautiful thing. When we receive a child into our home, it is as though we receive Jesus into our home. But contrast. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, receiving is this positive thing, welcoming, loving, affection, affirmation, but negative. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better For him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, when Jesus is talking, it's never comfortable. He's always talking, and and, and on one hand, there's this sweet, precious picture, and on the other hand, there is this massive word of caution that to cause another to sin is a great evil. And this is a word for God's people that we must hear, that is so serious. Jesus continues, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. We look around and we say, well, if I don't do this, somebody else will. What's the big deal if I cause temptations? Jesus says, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And when dealing with temptation, he continues, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown to the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so on the one hand, he says, we must come like children, humble. And on the other hand, he says, we must fight ready to cut off limb or eye so that we would not be given to temptation. We would not give way and, oh, even worse, if we are the one that brings temptation, the one by whom temptation comes. Jesus is describing what the people of God are to be a humble people and a people who are doing war with temptation and pleading with God that we not be the means through which temptation comes. He continues. Verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, each one precious. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Does Jesus care about each life? Does he care about each child? Does he care about each one who begins to wander? He is saying, absolutely, go get them. Go pursue them. My heart is a heart of mercy for the one who is straying, the one who is wandering, to bring them back in. And what Jesus is doing here is he's building an argument. He's building what the character of God's people is to be about, a people who is humble, a people who is warring against temptation, a people who has mercy for the one who is wandering and goes and does everything they can to bring them back in. And it's in this context then that we read verse 15, that if your brother sins against you and then the following text that we read. And we're going to come back there, but first I want to see the last part of the chapter and then we'll circle back to our text, verse 15, but down to verse 21. He's talking about pursuing the lost. He's talking about forgiving sin, forgiving our loved ones, forgiving our brothers in the church. And Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You might be able to relate with this. Someone has sinned against you and you're tired of them sinning against you. You're tired of forgiving them. And you, like Peter, would say to Jesus, how many times am I going to have to forgive this person? As many as seven times? That is the limit of my patience. And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven and then he tells this story. You've heard this story, likely, but consider it one more time in terms of what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the people of God are to be like. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. You know this story when he began to settle? He began first with one who owed him 10,000 talents. 
and he could not pay. His master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. If you don't remember the amount that this servant owed, he owed a lot, 10,000 talents. That doesn't mean anything to us. But if you do the math, current day money, he owed him $60 billion. What's the point? It's an unpayable debt. No, no human being can pay this debt. What did he spend $60 billion on? We don't know. A lot of credit card interest, apparently, something. But he, he has no chance to pay this. And the point is clearly not about a man. The point is about one who has an unpayable debt. An unpayable debt that could never be repaid. And he pleads for mercy. Have patience with me. And out of pity, the master released him and forgave the entire debt. And oh, for any of us that have known ourselves to be sinners, for any of us who have known ourselves to owe God a debt for our sin that we could never repay, we see ourselves in this story. And yet the story doesn't end here. But this same servant who has just been forgiven This enormous debt found out that one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And again, we must stop and say, what's the math on this? A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. So if if, if working a day earns you a hundred bucks or a hundred and fifty bucks, he is owed $15,000, we can say. It's a good amount of money. Doesn't touch $60 billion. But this one who's just been forgiven now goes to his fellow servant who owes him this $15,000, seizes him, begins to choke him and says, pay what you owe. His fellow servant falls down, pleads with him and says, have patience with me and I will pay you. The first servant refused and he put him in prison until he could pay the debt But when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went, they reported to the master all that had taken place. The master summoned him, said, you wicked servant, I forgave you everything, $60 billion because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. What's the point? Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. A long story to make a really important point, which is what? The people of God are to be marked by forgiveness. To be marked by a reality that we have standing before God only because He has forgiven our debt, only because the perfect Son of God died a sacrificial death so that we who are sinful could be counted free by faith. And it's only in that standing then that we are received by God. But that must change how we live with one another. And we must become those who forgive and forgive and forgive. Not seven times, but much more than seven times. 
not harboring bitterness, not letting enmity come and divide us. And you say, okay, pastor, where, where are you going with this? What, what, what's the point with all of this? All of this is the context now for our text. That begins, if your brother sins against you. So now turn and look with me at verse 15 as we zoom in to think about this text for a few minutes. Here Jesus is describing the community of faith, the people of God who are to be childlike in faith, who are to be pursuing lost people, who are to be forgiving. And he says, if your brother sins against you. Okay? Jubilee, this is so important because there have been multiple people that have said, I, you know what, I'm done with the church. Well, why are you done with the church? Well, I got hurt at church. Someone hurt me. They, they sinned against me. What's our answer to that person? Our answer is, of course. Of course. We don't want that to happen. But if, if you're going to leave a relationship because someone sins against you, you will leave every relationship. You will leave every friendship. You will leave every marriage. You will stop being parents or children because sinful people hurt one another. That's not our aim, but it happens. And so Jesus knows that. And this is one of two places Jesus talks about the church. And he is talking about what to happen, what happens when someone sins against us. And so Jesus says here, if your brother sins against you, what are you to do? Well, first, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. What do you not do? Get on social media and blow him up. You know what Don Winnis did? Boy, he didn't even look at me at church today. I walked right by him. I was, gonna, I was smiling at him. Once shake his hand, he blew right by me. Blew me off. Don Winnis is a real whatever on Facebook, right? Is that what we do? We say, that's, that's silly. Who would do that? Well, that kind of thing happens more than we would like, right? Or, hey, Pastor Dan, you know what Don did to me? You need to talk to Don. Don didn't even, sorry, Don, that I'm picking on you because Don's the nicest guy in the world. That's, never do that. But Jesus' word here is you go to the person directly and you seek in this spirit of humility in this spirit of forgiveness, you seek to win him. And why do we need the church jubilee? Because not only do you need this, I need this. Every one of us needs this. We need one another so that we will finish the race. So that we can keep fighting the good fight. Because it's easy to think, you know what? This is just too hard. This is just too hard. Either being part of a body or being in a relationship that's hard or following Jesus, it's too hard. Look at the world. They've got it easy. They're not worried about this stuff. They're eating and drinking. They're not in church on Sunday. They're, they're sleeping and having a late brunch. That's awesome. We should do that. Go to whatever movie we want. Do whatever we want and then... And then they're standing in front of that casket saying, I have no hope. This doesn't make sense. And then their own life 
comes to an end and they're saying, what did I live for? And they realize they have missed the point and the point is to walk with Jesus. And Jesus is describing what our life is to look like together. Step one, if your brother sins against you, go to him. Step two, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's grounding that in Old Testament practice there. But now, your brother doesn't listen to you. Take a couple others with you and go to him. What are you doing in this conversation? What's the goal in this conversation? What are you trying to achieve in this conversation? Friends, if you see me doing something in my life and you say, what are you doing? This is not good. First, you come to me directly, one-on-one, and then two or three come and you say, John, don't do this. Don't do this. Please turn. What are you doing? This is, this is not good. This is crazy. And we go to one another like this and we say, please turn, repent. We're not going with, with a hammer. We're not going with a closed fist. We're going seeking repentance. The point of this is all repentance. The point of this is all restoration. And yet Jesus knows that sin hardens the heart and sin causes some to turn away and do their own thing and go their own way. And so now there is a third step. And this third step involves the church. If you are a member of this church, this step involves you. And to know that being a member of a church is an office with authority, an office that is important. We want to talk about that after we see it. Verse 17, if this one then refuses to listen to these two or three, what's the next step according to Jesus? What does Jesus say to do then? Then you tell it to the church. Then you say it to the church. And we say, whoa, 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 that doesn't seem cool. Jesus, you sure you got that right? Is that gossip? No, this is the instruction of Jesus. Why? Because a church is to be a family. And in a family, you have to have family meetings. And you have to talk about family life. And you have to talk about realities. When hard things happen in families, you talk about them. And what's the goal here? The goal is, after you tell it to the church, everybody give that knucklehead the stink eye. Everybody make sure you go, tut, tut, tut. You're a lousy sinner, not like us. No, no, none of that, right? If he refuses, you tell it to the church. What's the church do? The church, like a child, in humility, ready to forgive, ready to extend mercy, goes after this person and says, we love you. We love you. We love you. Please turn. Please follow Jesus. We don't want you to to, to walk away from Jesus. And then If this one refuses to listen, middle of verse 17, step four, if this one refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
What does this mean? What does this mean? This person is then to be to you, Gentile tax collector, that doesn't translate very well for us, but this person is then to be treated as an unbeliever. So someone asked, does this mean they're, they're barred from coming to church? It does not. It does not. We welcome people that don't believe Jesus to come. What it does mean is they're not welcome to commune with the family of God when we take communion, which is where we get the, our word excommunicated. They are outside the community, outside the family of God is the step that Jesus is saying. Welcome to come, but in a different category, treated as a Gentile and tax collector. Verse 18, now hear this because it sounds odd and we want to understand what this means. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is he saying? Jesus is saying he gives authority to his people on earth to declare who is in the family of God and who is out. That's exactly what he's saying there. Sometimes those are called the keys of the kingdom. But the members of God's church are to decide together who's in and who's out, who's believing and who's not a believer. And you say, well, pastor, how in the world can we decide who's a believer and who's not? Pastor, we're not to judge anybody else's hearts. What, what are we doing? Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. This is where the, the, the context of the chapter is really important. This is not haughtiness. This is not pride. This is not hard-heartedness. This is saying, if someone walks in unbelief, their life is giving evidence of unbelief, and we go to them first step one-on-one. We go to them with two or three, step two. Then we go and we warn them and we say, friend, please turn. We don't want to do this. Step three, then we tell it to the church. And then the church is going to them saying, please, friend, turn. Don't do this. Then step four, we decide together. Not the pastor, not the pastors, not the elders, the church decide together this person is not walking as a believer in Jesus. We're not saying we see everything in their hearts. We're not saying that. We're just saying there's a life that is bearing a fruit that is not consistent with the, the root of faith in their life. And so Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Friend, what's the goal of this process we call church discipline? What's the goal? To paint a scarlet letter on someone's chest and to shame them? No, no, no. That's, that's a stereotype uh, from American literature that has been practiced in some churches and is not what Jesus is calling us to in the entire chapter. The goal of all discipline is love. The goal of all discipline is the pursuit of the lost sheep. The goal of all discipline is mercy and forgiveness and saying, friend, turn, turn, turn. You see, Jubilee, if I say, I'm leaving my wife. If I then say, I'm no longer believing in Jesus. You don't get on Facebook and start talking about it. You come and you pursue me and with tears you plead with me to not be an idiot. 
you plead with me not to make an eternal mistake. You plead with me, don't do this thing. Don't do this thing. Don't do this thing. We love you. Not coming in pride, not coming in hard-heartedness, but with brokenness. And you say, Pastor, that'll never happen. What pastor would leave his wife? What pastor would leave his church? What pastor would leave the faith? The answer is one like every other person because pastors aren't special. We are sheep. We are broken. And a man I met years ago, read some of his books, Joshua Harris, was the latest story of one who embarked on this very thing. And he is a warning to us that it is not automatic that I or anyone here will finish well. It is not automatic. You see, the last chapter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote was 2 Timothy 4. And in that chapter, as he sees his death approaching, keep your finger here, let's turn over there as we come to the end. Hear what he says. Hear what this tired, faithful servant of the Lord says. He says to his protege, his young friend Timothy, he says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, preach the word in season and out of season. Time's coming when people aren't going to listen anymore. Keep going. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, fulfill your ministry. And then he said this, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out. The time of my departure has come, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's a crown of righteousness which the Lord will award to me, not only to me, but all who have loved His appearing. All who are saying, Jesus, come. We are so excited for you to come. And then He says this, verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Go look for Demas. You'll find him in multiple other places as a fellow worker, as part of the team, as a member of the church. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith, again, who had been a believer, who had been part of the team, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then he greets Priscilla, Aquila, other loved ones whom he loved. There were still a faithful band that loved him and that he loved. But oh, there had been multiple ones that Paul walked with that he knew that loved that had turned away. So Jubilee, we have this text before us. We have this pattern from Jesus calling us to walk in obedience to something that is hard, that's easier just to not do, but something we are to practice faithfully, in humility, trusting Him. 
Okay, so a couple points of application as we come to the end. What does this look like at Jubilee? At Jubilee, some of you have heard this, some of you don't know, but as elders, we seek to serve this body by shepherding each one who is a member. And when we see someone who is in particular need, particular difficulty, we together put them on what we call the care list. The care list is not discipline. The care list is those who are going through unusually hard circumstances. And we ask the deacons, we ask others, pray for them, help them, let's seek God on their behalf. And it is our joy to put people on the care list and to take people off and just watch God help them. But we also have a list called the watch list. And those are people who are like in this Matthew 18, this Matthew 18 scenario, people that are beginning to walk away from Jesus, people who are beginning to make unwise choices. These are people that we're pursuing. We're saying, please turn, please repent. And then some of them with joy turn and, and we forgive them and we regain our brethren. Let me, hear, let me say this again because it's easy to mishear this. This is not a call for perfect people. Every one of us sins. When we sin, we repent, we turn, we're restored. That's the goal. There is mercy here. There is forgiveness 70 times 7. But how does one persevere on this list? One perseveres on this list, this watch list, when they say, no, 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 no. So just know, loved ones, that if you say that, we will walk in faithfulness here and our goal will be love and it will be restoration. So we have a care list, we have a watch list, and when we have members meetings, we share briefly about, um, about these updates and we have an update which we will share soon uh, with, with some news for you. Now, there's the thought that it would be easier to not practice church discipline. So let's ask the question, what is the danger of not doing church discipline? It would be easier, many churches don't do church discipline, so why would we do church discipline? Won't, won't it damage our reputation as a church if we practice discipline? The answer, loved ones, is that it will damage the reputation of Christ and His church if we do not practice church discipline. See, right now, the American church is talking a lot about child abuse. And at Jubilee, we are working really hard to do everything we can to prevent child abuse. We have accepted Southern Baptist Convention's Caring Well Challenge. We are doing everything we can to prevent child abuse. And what happens when there is an instance of one who causes another one to sin? Is it love to say, no big deal? Is it love to say, we'll handle this. We'll sweep this under the rug. No need to get the authorities involved. Is that love? No, it is not. No, it is not. And it is not love when one hardens themselves and does not turn from this behavior to let them persist in doing so. And you say, does that ever happen? Oh, wait. That has happened in church after church after church, organization after organization after organization, company after school, after Boy Scout troop, after whatever. Because in our 
flesh, we want to protect our reputation individually and together. The danger is not of doing church discipline. The danger is compromising our integrity and not doing it. One more word of application. Though it is painful to walk here, it is always done with patience. It is always done with humility. And it is always done with an eye towards forgiveness and restoration. We are never in a hurry. Never want to be haughty. Never want to be hasty. Always seeking that we would help one another fight the good fight. We would help one another keep the faith. We would help one another finish the race. So, hard message, hard reality, good Savior, great gospel, great hope, and great promises that the imperfect, broken people of God, all recognizing that we, like child, come to our Father, needing Him, saying to the world, we are not perfect people, but we are a people that is believing in Jesus and seeking to walk in integrity and turn from sin together. We pray that God would make us like a city on a hill because Jesus is worthy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. We need you. Jubilee, as we come to our ninth anniversary, we come in weakness, we come in dependence, and we come asking, Father, that you would work. We know that we won't practice all of this perfectly. We do know that we want to practice it faithfully. And so we pray that you would help us to do so. Father, we say thank you for the children we were able to dedicate this morning. We say thank you for the good work you're doing in so many hearts and lives. And as we turn now and think about this week, we are reminded, Jesus, that our hope is in you, that you are a God who is rich in mercy, that you are a Savior who is perfect, who has died for us. And we pray that you would help us, each one, to finish this course that you have given us. Father, we need you, and we ask that you would come on us as individuals and you would come on us as a church. We ask this in Jesus' mighty, powerful name. Pastor Lou.